You're listening to TIP. The first thing I look at when evaluating a property isn't even the property. Like I'm not even concerned about the property first. The first thing I'm concerned with is the city that that property is located in. In this week's episode, I bring back Tony Robinson to talk about everything Airbnb and short-term rental investing. Tony Robinson is well-known in the world of real estate investing as the host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Rookie Podcast, which I was actually a guest on. You can find my episode there. After starting his investment career by purchasing single-family homes as long-term rentals, he found the tremendous opportunity that short-term rentals provide and has since focused 100% of his efforts on growing that part of his business. Tony's expertise is in building systems and creating the automation needed to effectively manage multiple short-term rentals at once. He's also the head of acquisitions for Alpha Geek Capital and puts each property through rigorous analysis before adding it to the portfolio. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to share that my book, The Everything Guide to House Hacking, is officially on presale from Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, Target, Walmart, and many more. I actually just got my first physical copy in hand yesterday from the publisher. It was, it was a really cool feeling. You can pretty much get the book anywhere you can buy books and you can pre-order it there. TIP has been gracious enough to purchase 50 copies of the book to give away to listeners of the show. In order to get the book for free, go to everythinghousehacking.com and pre-order the book. Then just send a copy of your receipt to contact at everythinghousehacking.com and then also include how you'd like to be reimbursed, whether Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal. The first 50 people to send in their receipts will get reimbursed so the book is free for them. I'll be sure to put the website and the email address that I just mentioned in the show notes below so you don't have to write it down while you're driving or working out or in case you just forget. I really hope you guys all enjoy the book. Now, without further delay, let's get right into this week's episode with Tony Robinson. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I am your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I bring back Tony Robinson. Tony, welcome to the show. Robert, I appreciate you having me on, brother. Super excited to be back, man. Always good catching up with, uh, with old friends, talking real estate and, and bringing some value to the folks that are listening. Yeah, it's been too long, but let's dive right into the conversation. I'm sure that it, it varies from person to person. And even I'd say probably strategy to strategy within short-term rentals. But for you, what do you look for to determine if a property is a good fit for an Airbnb? What are some of the immediate red flags that turn you off from a property? The first thing I look at when evaluating a property isn't even the property. Like I'm not even concerned about the property first. The first thing I'm concerned with is the city that that property is located in. And I want to make sure a, that I can legally operate my short-term rental in that city. And then B, I'd like to invest in markets that are economically dependent on the revenue that short-term rentals generate. As of right now, none of our portfolio consists of properties in like major metros, like I'm close to Los Angeles, San Diego, San Francisco is not like... We don't invest in those major metros because there's way too much economic activity outside of the short-term rental industry that's supporting those major metros, right? Like you think of LA, they have literally every single major business industry you can think of, film, TV, business headquarters, universities, everything is, is in LA. But where we do invest, we're looking in Branson, Missouri. We're looking in, we're in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. We're in Joshua Tree in the Smoky Mountains. We're looking near uh, Zion National Park. Like We're trying to find these places where the main economic driver is vacation and tourism. Because if that's the case, then they have a vested interest in making sure that they protect to some extent the short-term rentals that are in that market. So anyway, that's the first thing I look for is to make sure that the, the policies support short-term rentals. Now, when it comes to the actual property, when it comes to the actual property that I'm looking at, I think what I look for is going to vary from market to market. But ultimately, the only thing that's really important to me is that I'm able to get the return that I'm looking for. And everyone's going to have a different level of like cash on cash return that they want. Some people are going to be fine with you know 10 to 15%. Some people want 30%. But whatever that number is to you, 
I would let that dictate my decision on whether or not to buy a property. In Joshua Tree, we have a ton of properties that are relatively small. You know, we have a bunch of like studios and tiny houses in Joshua Tree. In other markets, we have, you know, four and five bedroom properties because that's where the return was better. So every market is going to kind of have a, a sweet spot in terms of size of property that allows you to maximize your return. Now, once we actually own the property, we're going to do whatever we can to make sure that it's profitable. So we're going to focus on the design. We're going to focus on the amenities. We're going to operate it to the best of our ability. But when actually evaluating a property, the only thing I'm really looking at is what kind of return can I get back for that property? Do you find that it has any correlation to bedrooms, bathrooms, anything like that, or any specific amenities? Again, it's going to vary. Like when we first started investing in short term rentals, Tennessee, Smoky Mountains region was where we started investing. And, you know, we, we did a lot of research, we analyzed a bunch of different properties. And what we found was that in that market at the time, the sweet spot for buying properties was that four and five bedroom count because you were able to maximize your revenue, but the price points weren't nearly as high as like a six, seven, or eight bedroom, right? So it's like you, you got this maximized revenue where if you bought a four or five bedroom, you can do 50 to 75% more than a two or three bedroom, but you're not paying 50 to 75% more for the property. And once you get into like the six and eight bedrooms, maybe you're paying double the price of the four bedroom, but it's not going to do double the revenue, if that makes sense. The sweet spot in that market was the, the kind of four to five bedroom count. Conversely, in Joshua Tree, what we found is that there's a, a large number of folks that travel in small groups in Joshua Tree, right? We get a lot of couples who just want to go hike the park together and things like that. So the smaller properties have kind of been our sweet spot in that market. The way that I would analyze this is whatever market it is that you've decided on investing in, take a little bit of time to analyze properties at each bedroom count. And what you're going to start seeing is like if you, if you analyze three one bedrooms, three two bedrooms, three three bedrooms, three four bedrooms, three five bedrooms, Eventually, you're going to see some trends in terms of what kind of returns you can get. And that should kind of help, help you at least make the decision of which size is the, the kind of prime size for that market. How are you determining if it's legal in that area? And, and not necessarily just legal or not, like yes or no, but also kind of the laws and regulations. I know I've tried to look into that a little bit myself, and it's kind of been a nightmare, to be honest. I had a hard time finding it. So I'm curious, how do you do that process? If you're close enough, I would drive into City Hall, whatever government body is in charge of regulating the short-term rentals. And I would ask to speak to the person in charge of that and just ask them like, hey, I'm looking at buying a short-term rental. What do I need to know? And more often than not, they're going to be able to share pretty much all the information you need. So that's my favorite way is just like going into the place where it's happening, talking to someone in person and getting that information firsthand. We're looking at buying a hotel in Big Bear Lake. It's like a lake town here in California. And as soon as we were kind of looking at some properties out there, literally the first property that we went to, as soon as I left, my next stop was City Hall up there to, to tell them, hey, we're looking at buying this property. Help me understand what we need to know if we are to, to purchase on that. And a lot of times the folks at City Hall are appreciative of the investors that, that want to do right. So more likely than not, they're, they're willing to share. Now, if you're not close enough to drive, most of the times, if you type in city name plus short-term rental permit or short-term rental ordinance, you can find a lot of good information on their websites as well, especially if it's a more mature vacation rental market. If you're going maybe into the sticks somewhere or a place that's a little bit more rural or, or doesn't have a lot of short-term rental activity, it might be a little bit harder to find that information online, but most kind of mature vacation markets have that stuff laid out pretty clearly. And if you can't go in in person, you can't find it online, pick up the phone and give them a call and, and hopefully you can get in touch with someone that way. You don't have any problems investing in California? You're okay with kind of the laws and regulations and just general real estate environment there? California gets a bad rap, but I, I think that's more so on the, on the long-term rental side. It's a very tenant-friendly state, but the folks that stay in my place are only there for 24 to 48 hours on average. Like The, the average stay duration across our entire uh, Joshua Tree portfolio is like 1.8 days. right? So they're in and they're out. And we've had instances where we've had to like escort guests off the property. And all we have to do is call the sheriffs and say, we own this property. This guest is a short-term rental guest. They're refusing to leave. I need your help to get them out. And cool, we'll dispatch somebody to get them off the premises. A lot of those issues that you get in California with the long-term rentals don't necessarily apply to the short-term rentals because those tenant landlord laws haven't taken effect because the stays are so short. But I mean, from a vacation and, and like hospitality perspective, California has a lot to offer. Right? Like California has a lot to offer. 
I think that there's still a big opportunity in a lot of the, the markets in California from a short-term rental standpoint to buy properties at a decent value and, and get a pretty strong return. How do you think about seasonal areas? Are those areas completely off limits to you? Do you need something that can go year round or are you okay with seasonal as long as the numbers pencil out? When it comes to seasonality, I think my, my preference is markets that have kind of a, I guess, less swing of seasonality. Most of the markets we invest in, they never go vacant for like months at a time. Even in Joshua Tree, which is a desert region, you know, it gets triple digits daily during the summer. We're still not empty during the summer months, right? Like people are still coming to our properties and booking nights. We're just charging significantly less than we do during peak season. I mean, I haven't quite experienced, like, I, for example, I know some short term rental operators that literally shut down their short term rentals for four to five months out of the year when it's off season. And then they turn it on for six months and that's where they make all of their money. That's not, I don't think that's quite the approach that we'll take. I think we'll always want to operate in a market that has some level of year round draw and attraction just to make sure that we're best protecting our cash flow for those properties. But hey, I know some people that open up their properties for six months and, and make a killing, right? And they're only working half the year and, and that's what they want. Uh, but for me, I, I do like a little bit more steadiness of the, of the income. How'd you get comfortable with buying out of state? You mentioned you live in California. How'd you get comfortable with buying your first property out of state? I got comfortable buying my first property long distance because I was, I was forced to. When I got my very first investment property, this was back uh, in 2019. I was working a full-time job. I had limited capital. I knew I couldn't invest in California because at the time I was trying to buy long-term rentals and everything in California didn't pencil out. So I knew I needed to go somewhere outside of where I lived. And I ended up landing in, uh, in Louisiana. I was like, I don't know, like two, 3,000 miles away from where I lived. And through that process, it forced me to build a team and you know, implement certain checkpoints into my business that allowed me to operate remotely. I burred a property. My very first investment property was a burr. So I had to buy it, rehab it, um, you know, place tenants from a distance. And like when that distance is there between you and your property, it really forces you to build the right team around yourselves. I, I found a contractor that came highly recommended from my, my lender. I would literally FaceTime him or someone on his team every Friday. They would walk me through the property. I found a really good property manager. I flew out there, interviewed like three to four different property managers in person. Found one that I liked, and I did this before I even closed on the property. So I was I was really trying to build my team so that way I knew I'd be able to manage it remotely. So for me, it's the people and it's your processes that should give you the confidence to be able to manage remotely. Now, unless you're planning to self perform the work, like especially in the world of short term rentals, right? Like if you're gonna if you're gonna be the person cleaning your unit, uh, if you're gonna handle most of the maintenance requests, then yeah, maybe it makes sense for you to to buy a property that's close to you. But if you're looking to do this at scale, Right, and you want to have a relatively large portfolio, you're not going to be able to do those things yourself. So you're going to have to hire a team anyway. What difference does it really make if the property is 30 minutes away or three hours away or 3,000 miles away? If you build the right team, you build the right systems and right processes, that's what's going to allow you to build, build an actual business and manage remotely. Do you go to the properties before you purchase them? And then once you purchase them, do you go to them frequently? If it's a turnkey property, we typically do not go to them before we buy them. The only properties that we'll try and get eyes on beforehand are our rehabs. Um, so we've been rehabbing a lot of properties just because of where the market's at. That's kind of where the better deals are. Those, we'll get them under contract. But before we close on those, I'll typically want to see them and, and kind of walk it with my team to make sure that, that we've got a good idea of uh, what the rehab's going to cost us. But if it's a turnkey property and we don't need to rehab it, I can do all pretty much everything I need to do virtually, right? So I'm going to send my agent. I'm going to send a property inspector. Maybe I'll send my handyman. I'm going to have them do all the, the little nitty gritty things of making sure that it's a good property to buy. And then, then all I have to do is take that data back, run it through my analysis, make sure the numbers still work, and then I'm, I'm ready to move forward with it. It's just the, the rehabs that we typically really want to kind of see to make sure that we can execute the business plan we want to execute with it. Do you go to the properties frequently once you own them? Very rarely. We do try and hit our Tennessee properties at least once a year. So each property we'll try and spend a little bit of time at. And we have some properties where we have the second home loan in our own name. And those ones are supposed to get about 14 days a year of personal use. So we try and hit the ones like that. But outside of that, very rarely do we step foot inside of the properties once they're up and running because we don't have to. Any issues, our cleaners are pretty good about notifying us of those issues. And anything they miss, your guests might let you know, right? Very rarely do we actually have to step foot inside the properties. 
So you've determined which type of properties you're looking for and where you want to buy them. How do you analyze a short-term rental? What is your deal analysis process? When you're analyzing a short-term rental, there's really two pieces of information that you need, right? Like as, as with any type of property that you're analyzing, but you need to know your projected income and you need to know your projected expenses. On the projected income for a short-term rental, there's three pieces of data that, that kind of make up that property's income. Um, I guess four if you want to get like fancy with it, but three at a basic level. So the three basics are your average daily rate, your occupancy, and your income from cleaning fees. Your average daily rate is on average what you can expect to charge a guest over a 12-month period. Your occupancy is over a 12-month period, what percentage of the time do you expect your property to actually be booked? And then your cleaning fee income is, again, over a monthly or a 12-month period, how much revenue do you expect to generate from your cleaning fees? I include the cleaning fees as income because on platforms like Airbnb and Verbo, you actually do charge your guest a cleaning fee and that money is included in the payout that you receive from those platforms along with what your guest paid for their nightly stay. So cleaning fee is recognized as income. And then like a fourth thing, like I know some hosts that they'll have like snacks, additional snacks and like waters and you know other amenities in their properties and they'll charge guests additionally for using those. Some hosts have like, I don't know, like in Josh Tree, maybe you have like a Jeep at your house and they can rent the Jeep or whatever it is. If you have like any ancillary services you offer, that'll be like a fourth thing. But the main three, ADR, occupancy and your uh, cleaning fee income. And then on the expenses side, it's the same thing with any, any rental really, right? Your utilities, insurance, your principal interest taxes and, uh, principal t- taxes and insurance payments, your cleaning fees, because you do have to pay your cleaners from that money that you collect from the guest, and then in any repairs and maintenance. Those are the things that I'm typically looking at when I'm analyzing a property. And you, know, you boil all that down to get some sort of cash on cash return for that property. How do you estimate what that average daily rate is going to be? And then also, how do you estimate your Mm -hmm. vacancy? If you don't own a property in that area, you're going there. What are you using to get comfortable with those numbers? There is software out there that can speed this process up for you. So probably some of the two biggest players in this space are Price Labs and AirDNA. And both of those platforms allow you to essentially punch in an address and it'll give you a bunch of comparable listings around that property that you can then use to gauge what your potential ADR and occupancy might be for a property. So that, that's the easiest, that's the fastest way. Another way to do it is to like just literally open up Airbnb and say that I'm trying to buy, I don't know, like a, a two-bedroom property in whatever, like Winston Salem, North Carolina. And I would go into Airbnb and I would plug in two bedroom and I'm gonna look on the map around where this property is I'm looking to buy. And I just want to try and find other comparable properties and see what their ADRs look like over the next 30, 60, 90 days. And that'll kind of help give me a better idea of what my property might be able to charge as well. There's the paid kind of quick and easy way. And not necessarily quick and easy, but the paid way that kind of aggregates that data for you or the manual way that's free where you can kind of go and start pulling some of that data yourself directly from the platforms. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, My wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. 
It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. All right, back to the show. What do you see for average vacancy rates across your portfolio? Are you upwards of 75, 80, 90%? Where, where are you on each property and then maybe as a portfolio whole? You know, actually, I don't know across the entire portfolio. I don't often look at the data that way. We usually look like on like a per property level, but I, I can tell you in, in Joshua Tree, with especially our smaller properties, we can oftentimes maintain a 90 plus percent occupancy. With our larger properties in Joshua Tree, we have some three bedrooms. Those ones are averaging around like the mid 70s uh, so far. Um, same thing for Tennessee. Like if you look on an annual basis, most of our properties out there are a little bit bigger or somewhere around like the, the mid 70s. And every market is going to be different. Every operator is going to be different. I know some people who will sacrifice their occupancy because they don't want to charge below a certain price. Like, you know, they're like, hey, if I have this big property, I don't want to charge below X. Whereas us, we're, we're a little bit more. We, I guess we have a higher risk tolerance in that sense where we're willing to kind of drop the price last minute to make sure we can, we can kind of drive our occupancy up. So there, there is a balance between both of those things. But on average, smaller properties in JT, we're, we're pretty consistently hitting 90%. Bigger properties across the portfolio, I'd say around like the mid 70s to maybe 80%. I'm really surprised to hear that the rates are that high, just given you said on average people stay 1.8 days like that. It just seems like a lot of turnover with such a high vacancy. If you told me that totally. vacancy was like what forty, fifty percent, and you were just people are staying less than two days, I'd be like, okay, that makes sense. But less than two days and a ninety percent occupancy, I mean, that's a lot of people coming and going in that yeah, property. Fourteen to fifteen people a month, easy. That's crazy. And to your point about the people that don't really worry about the occupancy rate and more so about the daily nights rate is kind of me with my RV because I people have reached out to me. People book the RV pretty last minute very frequently. A lot of people book it ahead of time too, but a lot of people book last minute. And I have people, they'll see that like I have two or three days open and they're like between like a week long rentals on each end. And they're like, hey, can I book in between? And I always say no. I'm like, I just don't want to deal with like a, mm. a two night rental. It's just not worth it to right. me. You know, I have people that want to do it for a mm. week and I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll do that. And so, yeah, it hurts my occupancy rate. I guess if, if I were to book those two nights, my occupancy rate would be higher. But for me personally, it's just not worth it in that situation. So I definitely understand kind of that other perspective from the other Airbnb investors. What are you looking at for your return metrics? Is cash on cash kind of your golden metric that you, you look for? Is that your number one thing? Or do you look at other stuff as well? Mostly just cash on cash return. Right now, we're, we're still trying to target deals that have around a 30% cash on cash return. They are getting obviously increasingly harder to, to find not just because of where prices have moved in the last couple of years, but now that we have this upward pressure on interest rates as well, we are being a little bit more selective with the properties that we're buying. But that's kind of been our, our baseline is we want to hit at least about a 30%. You mentioned all of the locations you mentioned that you're in, I was pretty familiar with, but Branton, New uh, Missouri, I'm not super familiar. Is that near Lake of the Ozarks? 
it's on the south end of uh, Missouri, but it's still technically part of the, the Lake of the Ozarks, but not like, not like the Ozarks you think of like the TV show on Netflix. It's a little bit closer to, uh, to Arkansas. But Branson has a lot of the same attractions that Pigeon Forge has. And there's a, a lot of similarity in terms of construction style and just like traveler profile. We had a lot of investors that we knew in Pigeon Forge that were moving into Branson as the prices in Pigeon Forge started to rise and we're getting kind of similar returns as, as Pigeon Forge. So that market kind of... Uh, we're, we're still waiting on our property to be done. We have new construction out there. We've got two new construction properties. But yeah, we're, we're excited to, to move into that market. Is there enough in that market to do for people to just go to Branson or are most people going there for oh, totally. the lakes? No, dude, I, I like Branson more than Pigeon Forge. Like there, there's a ton of attractions just like Pigeon Forge. Um, but then there's, again, also the lake, right? So you like, you can get out on the water. We were there a couple months ago with our Asian. You know, he just like took us on a tour of the, the lakes and dude, beautiful, like beautiful scenery, beautiful everything. I actually like Branson as a traveler more than I liked Pigeon Forge. When you're setting the actual nightly price for your properties, this is outside of the analysis. You've already determined the market, the property, you've done your analysis, you've bought it now. Now you're actually setting your nightly price. Do you use the same process that you used in your analysis? Do you just kind of lean on the software to set the pricing for you? When I'm setting the actual pricing for the property, it, it is a somewhat similar process, but a little more nuanced, a little more detailed. Typically, what I'll do is I will find, I don't know, I'll try and get into maybe like 10 or 15 listings that are very comparable to mine. And what I'll do is I'll try and track their, their pricing month over month. And essentially, what I end up with is an average price across that, those comparable properties for January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, and, and throughout the entire year. And within my pricing tool, I'm able to set a base price on a month-by-month basis. And that's, that's kind of how I go through the process. So I don't have one flat price across the year. I set up a different base price inside of my pricing tool every single month. And the base price, just to define that, is... I guess, let me take a step back. The way that these pricing tools work, these dynamic pricing tools work is you give it your base price, which is like the, the baseline for how it's going to price your property. And then the, the pricing tool takes in all this aggregate data from the market, and then it makes adjustments and customizations to your base price. Sometimes it's going to price it up. Sometimes it's going to pull it down, depending on your occupancy, the, the market demand, and all these other things. Very rarely is your, is your base price actually what's listed on your listing. There's always some kind of customization happening on top of it. Anyway, the, the base price is a really important thing to get right when you're setting your pricing strategy because all the cu- customizations will be based off of that price. Now, my base price for a property in Joshua Tree in March, when it's springtime and it's beautiful weather, is going to be very different than my base price in the middle of August when it's 115 degrees outside and people don't want to leave between 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. Uh, from the property. So I set different base prices for every single month. Uh, depending on how the market is, is is kind of moving. That's how we set up our pricing inside of the tools. When I first learned about that pricing software that they have for Airbnbs or short-term rentals, I was pretty impressed. I thought that was pretty cool. I, I'm hoping that that comes to the RV space. Like RVs are is very similar. Short-term rentals and RVs are very similar. So just like, kind of like a niche short-term rental in a sense. And so but RVs are lacking on that software side. There's no air DNA. There's no dynamic pricing. There's nothing like that. So I'm hoping that that software makes its, its way over to, to the RV stuff. Dude, you, you should be the one, man. You should be the one to, to break, in, break it into the space. I know. I know. I've, I've, some people have reached out to me. They've heard me talk about stuff like this on the podcast before. They're like, hey, I'm a developer. I know you can't code or do anything like that. So like, let's work together. And, and the thing is, what I've noticed is Somehow AirDNA has some sort of relationship in some fashion with Airbnb to get around their terms of service, their TOS, to allow them to kind of scrape Airbnb's data. Whereas if you look at the kind of like Airbnb platforms of the RV world, it's very against their terms of service to scrape their data. So you'd kind of have to be black hat for a little while to offer that kind of service. I don't know what the solution is. You might have to just kind of go get that relationship built with the major platforms. Yeah, possibly. I'm sure you're a smart guy, man. I'm sure you'll figure it out. We'll figure something out. But uh, when it comes to Airbnbs, and when I talk to people on the show, I've had a bunch of different Airbnb hosts on here. There seems to be two camps. One is diehard self-managers, and then there are diehard outsourcers. They're like, I'll never be caught self-managing, and then vice versa. Do you tend to prefer outsourcing 
property management to a company like Vacasa, or do you like to manage the properties yourself? Before I answer for myself, I will say that everyone's answer, I think, will be unique to their own situation, right? If you're a super busy working professional or you've got a lot of you know commitments to, to your family or to your community or whatever it is, maybe you don't have the time to manage an Airbnb because it, it can be time consuming, especially if you're managing at scale. But for us, our goal from the beginning was to build this out as a business. And uh, we wanted to become world-class at managing and operating short-term rentals. So we do all of our, our management in-house. Now, our team has grown a little bit since we first started. We have three virtual assistants that handle the majority of the, the initial guest communication. We have one operations manager based here stateside that kind of manages the VAs and deals with any escalations or things like that. Now, a little bit more of our time is focused on continuing to build the business as opposed to the, you know, the, the nitty-gritty of the communication. But our focus was always self-managing and getting really good at that. And then if anything, our, I think our goal eventually is to offer third-party property management at a reasonable price to other short-term rental hosts as well. I just recently had Isaac French on the show, and that was back on episode 135. And he shared some of his favorite... He's the same as you. He, he likes to self-manage. So he shared some of his favorite automation tools and some of his smart home devices that he really likes. And I know you have a few as well. Share with us what your top must-haves are for smart home devices and tools to automate your management. For the smart home devices, we're not super complex when it comes to that, but we get the keyless entry pad like everyone else. Specifically, we use the Slage OnCode. We like that one the most just because it integrates really well with our, our property management software. We use a Ring floodlight camera every single one of our properties. We have between one to two at each property, depending on how big it is. And then we're, we also just recently purchased the Minute Sound Sensor. We never had those before, but we just we want to make sure that our guests are behaving well, so that way we don't get like in, in hot water with uh, the county, the cities, or whoever, or the neighbors. Um, and having that Minute Sound Sensor is just another way to to kind of enforce that. I say those are the like the three big like smart home devices. And then uh, we, we've got a I don't know if I can plug this, Robert. We have a, a free downloadable shopping list. Literally everything we buy for a short-term rental that's like not design-specific, uh, you guys can get this download for free. So if you just go to therealestaterobinsons.com forward slash shopping list, it's literally like a downloadable Excel file that has links to Amazon for everything that we purchase to get a property set up. therealestaterobinsons.com slash shopping list. Now, so th- those are kind of the, the devices that we purchase. On the automation side, our PMS... And our our dynamic pricing tool and our digital guidebook, uh, those are the three like pieces of software that really allow us to reduce the amount of like manual communication that we have to have with guests. Our dynamic pricing tool, we talked a lot about that already, but that's going to automatically up adjust or down adjust our price on a daily basis. I still go in on about a weekly basis, kind of see how things are going and, and make some small adjustments to the base prices. But for the most part, all that daily price adjusting is happening without my involvement. So that's a dynamic pricing tool. Then we have a property management software. We use Hospitable. There's tons of uh, property management softwares out there, but uh, we love Hospitable because of A, it's, it's easier to use. Uh, some of the UIs I've seen are, are a little clunky or, or a little complex. Uh, we love Hospitable because it's pretty clean and easy. And then it has a, a high level of automation in terms of guest communication. So our guests get a series of, I want to say, seven or eight messages from the time they book until the time that they check out. And all of that happens automatically uh, without our involvement. So they get their check-in instructions. They get reminders of you know how to use different things around the property. They get check-out instructions. They get just, hey, I'm checking in to see how things are going type messages. So we, we love that functionality. And Hospitable also has this like AI engine that can read certain messages and then automatically apply the best response to them. We don't get too crazy with it because it, it doesn't always work the best. But for example, if someone asks like, Hey, what's the the Wi-Fi password? It'll automatically respond to that. Or if someone asks for a late checkout or an early check-in, it'll automatically respond to that. So there's some really cool functionality around its AI capabilities that we liked as well. And the last thing we love about it is that our cleaners integrate directly into Hospitable as well. So they're actually able to log into the app and see all of the turns they need to make to get the property ready for the next guest. So we never have to communicate with our cleaners about which day or, or time or whenever that they need to go and turn the properties. The PMS is hugely helpful. And then the last piece of software is our digital guidebook. And the guidebook is essentially like a set of video and written instructions for the property. It tells guests things like, here's how to use the, the hot tub. Here's how to take off the hydraulic lift cover that's on top of the hot tub. You know, We have like a stereo system in one of our cabins. It's like, hey, here's how to use a stereo system. Pretty much all the questions that guests have, 
we try to preemptively answer inside of that guidebook. That way, they don't have to reach out to us to ask those questions. And a lot of times, if a guest asks a question that's in the guidebook, we'll say, hey, we've actually already answered this in the guidebook, if you wouldn't mind taking a look there. Those are the, the three big pieces of software that allow us to automate our business. How do you put together the guidebook? Is it a specific software or are you just using like Google Doc and making it into a PDF? Like, how do you guys do that? I've seen it done tons of different ways. Uh, I know some folks use Canva, right? You can create it on the cheap with, with Canva. I've seen some people that just like kind of type it up and, and print it out for their guests. We use a company called Hostfully for their guidebooks. And it's just like a digital guidebook. They get a link and uh, it's like kind of interactive. And there's, you know, we can make changes and updates, you know, on the fly. So we use Hostfully for, for ours. I'll have to check that out. I do something very similar for the, again, the RVs. It's kind of my version of short-term rentals. And so I've been wanting to kind of improve my process though. So I, I'll have to check out that site. And I'm glad you mentioned cleaners. That was my exact next question. I've heard from a lot of listeners of the show. I've even experienced it myself that finding quality cleaners is difficult or just straight out not economical for the property. So how have you been able to find successfully find quality cleaners for your properties? Cleaners are the backbone of your business as a short-term rental operator. And not having a good cleaner is like the fastest way to drive yourself crazy, drive your guests crazy, and, and just really like make it difficult to be successful in this space. Couldn't agree more that cleaners are super important. Now, in terms of how to find those cleaners, there's a couple ways you can go. First is getting referrals from operators, from short-term rental operators in the market that you're investing in. If you invest in, I don't know, whatever, like uh, Montana, Bozeman, Montana, I would try and find other short-term rental hosts in Bozeman, Montana that would be willing to share who their cleaners are. Now, not every operator will be willing to share that information. Okay, me right now, my my cleaners are too busy. Like they're not they're not going to take on any other or any other host, right? But some might have that bandwidth. We actually found our first cleaner as a recommendation from another host. We had a friend who bought in the Smokies. He was nice enough to give us his cleaner's information. She was unfortunately like fully booked. She couldn't take on any more clients, but she had a friend who had just started her own cleaning company. She had worked at a cleaning company for like 20 years, something like that, but she decided to start her own. She was actively looking for clients. We were one of her first clients to come on and she's been fantastic. Referrals from other cleaners is a great way to go. If you invest in a, in a true vacation rental market, a lot of times agents, your realtor will know cleaners in that market and they can make recommendations as well. And if you can't find it from, from other investors or you can't find it from your agent, I would go online and search for like the local either real estate Facebook group or um, if there's a short-term rental, like vacation rental specific group for your area, go in there as well. A lot of times you'll see cleaners posting for work there as well. Referrals in person, online referrals work really well. Now, I'll tell you what we've done recently, Robert, because our, our portfolio has been expanding relatively quickly. And even though we had a good set of cleaners, we needed more to be able to absorb that growth. I literally put up a job ad. So we posted on Wise Hire Hotel Housekeeper. And um, I had my lead cleaner in that market. I had her interview all these other cleaners. And we've been able to add like, like four solid cleaners to that team from that job ad. We're getting creative with whatever way we can to kind of scale that team and find the right people. Have you had any luck with kind of the Uber platforms for cleaners? I know there's like care.com and there's some other like Thumbtack maybe. And there's another one, uh, TurnBnB, I think is another one. I- I've yeah, seen Turnover clean- BNB. Turnover BNB. Yeah. Have you had any luck with any platforms like that? We haven't used them. We haven't even experimented with them. I know some folks have had success with it, but I think our approach that we've taken has worked pretty well for us. So we haven't had to go down that route. But I think if I'm ever like in a pinch, I'd probably use it, but I, I can't speak from experience on those platforms. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. 
You can also enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. How do you reach out to the other Airbnb hosts in the area? Like, how do you get their contact information? I'm sure you just go to their listing, but then where do you go from there? I mean, so for me, if I'm, if I'm trying to network, I usually start online. There's big, massive Facebook groups, you know, tens of thousands of people globe, you know, for the national scene. And then a lot of times there are smaller local Facebook groups for like whatever markets you're investing in. So anytime we, we like move into a new market, one of the first things we do is we try and find Facebook groups uh, related to that market. And in there is where we kind of start building some of those relationships and you know trying to find folks that way. We've I've I've never reached out to a host through Airbnb to ask for that information, but it's happened to us <laughs> where people have reached out to us through our listing and they'll say you know like hey if you can like give me a call or whatever it is. So I mean we we've never done it, but people have done it to us. I personally don't like that approach too much because Airbnb does track like your inquiry to like booking rate. So as people reach out to you just to like talk about stuff that's not about booking your property. It actually hurts your metrics within the platform. I don't know how much weight that gives to your rankings, but I don't know. I try not to do it to host if I if I don't have to. Some listeners of the show have indicated interest to me, and they wanted me to ask you about this strategy. They're interested in utilizing a tiny house. Like I know you mentioned you had some small properties, but this is an actual tiny house for a short term rental. They mentioned maybe buying a piece of cheap land and then building a tiny house on it. What are your thoughts on a strategy like this for Airbnb? I think it's fantastic, right? I, I think it's it's going to maybe vary by the market. You know, maybe there are some markets that the tiny house uh, play won't work, but definitely, let me take a step back, right? Airbnb updated their website, their their whole user interface over the summer, right? They called the Summer Twenty Two release, and in that release it was the biggest redesign they've done to the website since they launched in two thousand and seven. And in that release, one of the things they introduced was the ability to search properties by category. So now if you go to Airbnb, you can search properties that are tiny homes. You can search for properties that are glamping tents. You can search for properties that are tree houses. You can search for properties that are... There's even an islands section, right? Like there, There's all these different crazy kind of unique structure categories that Airbnb is now trying to promote to its user base. And Airbnb, like they even just recently launched a, like a competition where they were giving away $10 million to I think 100 different hosts, like across 100 different hosts to go out and build these unique structures that would then be featured on Airbnb's platform. 
So Airbnb is really trying to push the, the idea of the unique structure, both on the guests and on the host. And I think I've never been in the boardroom meetings for, for Airbnb, but if I have to you know, take my best guess, I would think the reason that they're doing this is because they know, they understand that that's their best way to compete with the traditional hotel and, and hospitality industry, right? Like if I want to book, I was looking on Airbnb the other day, Robert, and there was literally a bunker in Roswell, New Mexico that you could book on Airbnb, like an actual like underground bunker. Like, do you watch Stranger Things? Uh, yeah, I've, I've seen some of it. Yeah. So if anyone's seen like the last season of Stranger Things, there's like, you know, a good portion of that season takes place in this like underground bunker. And that's exactly what it looked like on, on this listing in Roswell, New Mexico. I can't go to, to Hilton and book a, an underground bunker, right? I can't go to Hilton and book a treehouse. So I think Airbnb understands that this unique structure is going to be their way to continually differentiate themselves while continuing to grow the platform. To get back to actually answering your question, I think any type of unique structure, if done right, is going to be successful on that platform because A, Airbnb is pushing those, and B, I think it's the one thing that guests can't get anywhere else. I personally, and again, this is total opinion, I personally 100% agree. I think that's the only way that Airbnb is going to really last long-term as a business because I think when they, and I could be wrong, but when I believe when they first came out, they were cheaper than hotels. So that kind of drove a lot of traffic to them. That's not the case anymore. Hotels are are pretty cheap. Like I even see people talk about this on Twitter all the time. They're like, "Hey, for all those people who don't want to do X, Y, and Z at an Airbnb, there's this thing called a hotel that you can just go stay at." You know, <laughs> and for me, I never stay at Airbnbs. I think the hotels are just so convenient, and I just think they're mm-hmm. pretty affordable. I just think it's for me, I like them better, which is one of the reasons why I haven't got into Airbnbs heavily myself as an investment. So I think really one of the only ways that you're really going to win is by being unique, like you said, with all those properties. Now, on the flip side, I, I a little bit worry about that from an investor perspective, because one of the best ways to generate wealth through real estate is through the appreciation of the asset. If you get really unique, like mm-hmm. what, what is that bunker going to really appreciate, right? Like it's going to be right. kind of, I don't know. And versus if you buy like a two, three, four, five bedroom house, you kind of have some sort of appreciation profile as to how those types of assets have appreciated over time. And so that's, that's a little bit of my concern, I kind of, I guess, with the, the unique structure from an investor perspective. Would you say that the update has hurt or helped your portfolio? I'll answer that question, but I just want to comment on what you said about the, the lack of appreciation with the unique structures. I agree with that, right? But the way that we in our business are, are trying to not, not get around that, but the way that we're, we're going to kind of combine the ability to get appreciation with the ability to build unique structures is to build them like multiple on one parcel so that it's like almost like a, it's like a hotel, right? It's a commercial asset and you can then sell it based on its cap rate or, or the NOI and not necessarily like that one little treehouse or whatever it is. That's kind of the route that we're trying. You don't have to worry about comps in that case. Exactly. Right. Now they're just looking at what's your revenue. What's your operating expenses? What's your NOI? And then, and that's how the property will be valued. Now, you can't do that with one, right? You probably got to go out and, and you know build like five to ten of these unique structures on one parcel. But that's how you can still give guests the unique experience while also still being a, to benefit from the the appreciation that you're able to create. Yeah, Isaac French. We'll see we, if we can do it. Yeah, Isaac French. We had on the show. I, I mentioned a few times. He he did that exact strategy. He bought a piece of land. He built like seven almost like cabins in a sense, but I mean, they're really nice. So they're not like these little like rundown cabins, you know, but he bought this piece of land with like a little lake on it, a little pond, and he built seven cabins around it, built volleyball courts. I mean, essentially to me, kind of sounded like he was building almost like a campground, but with cabins really. Right. And then you're starting to see more and more people kind of move into that space. I'm really curious to see like 10 years from now, Kind of what this whole short-term rental space looks like, because I mean, you're you're getting some really smart people moving into this space with a very high level of creativity. So it's 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 an exciting time, man. And and that's the thing, Robert. Like we're still at the beginning. Like even though Airbnb is this massive platform now, we are still like think about how long Airbnb has been around. 2007, right? Think about how long hotels have been around, <laughs> right? So it's like in the grand scheme of the hospitality industry, we're like this far into the journey when it comes to short-term rentals. Said. I think even if you feel like you've maybe missed a train and everybody's doing it, like man, you you still got a ton of time. To go back to your other question about like if the the change has impacted our our listings, for the most part, no. A little bit actually in the Smoky Mountains, 
But it, it's hard to know if the if the change in the Smoky Mountains was because summer 2021 was just so crazy because it was like the first summer after COVID, or if it was because like you know maybe our listings aren't getting as much visibility. But I think honestly, it's probably more of the latter. There was so much pent up demand after COVID that summer 2021, everyone's listings were going crazy, right? Like I had a property that did like I don't know like 40 grand in two months last summer. And this year, that property is probably going to do like 30, right? So not a huge difference, but still not as big as it was last year. But I, I don't think it's necessarily the redesign. I think it's more so just the demand aspect. And in Joshua Tree, uh, we actually do categorize our, our studios as tiny homes because they, they kind of are, right? They're 391 square feet and they're really cool, really modern. So we categorize them all as tiny homes. So they, they do get some love from that category as well. I wouldn't say we've been too hurt by, by the redesign. To your point about some real smart people and, and big players coming into the space, I've seen some real estate funds, like almost on a syndication model coming into the space to buy hundreds of millions of dollars of, of Airbnb, which is interesting because up until relatively recently, it was just kind of smaller individual people, you know, people like yourself. I mean, you raise capital, but you're not doing these big syndication deals. You're just buying one-off properties here and there. But I've, I've seen some mm-hmm. funds come about. There are hundreds of millions of dollars that are buying some a lot of Airbnbs. It's, it's really interesting. I'm curious to see, like you said, how it plays out over the next decade or so. Yeah, but Robert, like honestly, man, that gets me excited because now I know, not that I know, but now I can hopefully confidently say that if I build a relatively large short-term rental portfolio, I can find one or two or three institutional investors that'll that'll buy it all up, right? And honestly, like we we had a, a meeting last year where we kind of planned out what the next decade looks like for us. And our goal is that by the end of 2032, so 10 years from now, we want a billion dollars in assets under management, you know, with a with a heavy skew towards the hospitality industry. So short-term rentals, unique stretchers, et cetera. And at that point, We'll be in a really good position to say, okay, do we sell this off, you know, and make a <laughs> several hundred million dollars and ride off into the the sunset, or, or what do we do? I'm somewhat excited to see the institutional money coming in because now it gives us a really clear exit strategy, you know, a, a decade down the line from now. I think overall, it's good for the industry. Are you guys primarily getting most of your traffic through Airbnb for your portfolio, or do you have success with other platforms? I know you use Verbo a little bit. Do you do any direct bookings or anything like that? Airbnb is like 80% of our traffic. Um, I'd say the other 20% is coming from from Verbo. Uh, we just recently started working on our direct booking website. Uh, so our goal is to, to have that up and running uh, by the end of the year. So it's there. It's active. Uh, we just have to kind of work out the tweaks and then really start marketing it. Uh, so the goal is that by like end of Q4, we have that really up and running uh, to full steam. I do think that there's a, a huge benefit to owning your own platform for guests to book on. Right, like you know, you you understand marketing, right? And like, what a lot of people I think didn't understand early on in the days of social media was that you couldn't bank everything on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or whatever platform it was because you didn't have control over that, right? What you do have control over is like if you can get like an email list, if you can get a phone number, if you can get an address, like those are things that you can hold forever. And even if your Instagram profile goes down, you still have you know whatever fifteen, twenty, a hundred thousand people on this email list that you can go and communicate with. It's the same thing for Airbnb and, and Verbo, right? At the end of the day, they control that platform. And if you do something to piss them off, or even if you don't do something to piss them off and they just make a mistake, you could still end up with your, your listings being deactivated, your listing being suspended, and now your ability to generate revenue goes from this to zero. So there's obviously some risk in that as well. We recognize that. And as our portfolio has grown, we want to make sure that we're adequately mitigating that risk. So the goal is by the end of the year to, to have that direct booking platform up. Yeah, that's a massive concern with me for short-term rentals personally. As somebody who's not really overly invested in the space, it's just I see it happen on other like on social media or YouTube or just all these other platforms where you don't own you you don't own the audience. I see it happening, so I'm just mm-hmm. it really worries me. Actually, I've seen it happen on with some friends on Airbnb too. Thankfully, it was in their mm-hmm. early stages, so it's not like they had like a built-out platform uh, or reliance on on it yet. But still, in the early days. It was just kind of a, I don't know exactly what happened, but his listing got shut down for spam or something like that when it wasn't. And uh, yeah, so it just mm-hmm. kind of put a big pause on the, on the business. Another uh, Airbnb related strategy, I actually saw you talk about this recently on, on Instagram, was Airbnb arbitrage. Break down and explain that strategy for us as well as the pros and cons. Airbnb arbitrage is where instead of going out and purchasing a property where you have a mortgage, 
you're listed on the deed, you're the actual owner. You instead go out and you rent a property from another landlord. But instead of you moving into that property, you turn around and you list that on Airbnb and Burbo. And then you just get to keep the difference between what your, your rent expenses are and the income that you generate on those platforms. Now, I will say, if limited cash flow and scaling quickly is your focus, Airbnb arbitrage is a fantastic model. right? I, I know people that are, that are crushing it, making an absolute killing, doing a great job. But there, there are some pros and cons. The cons associated with Airbnb arbitrage are lack of control, lack of equity buildup, and lack of uh, tax benefits. Lack of control, you're signing a lease. At any point, once that lease is over, that landlord can then make the decision of whether or not to renew your lease or you know, allow you to continue operating. Or that landlord could sell the property. And maybe the new tenant or the new landlord isn't obsessed with the idea of arbitrage, or maybe they want to do it themselves. And now you've lost your unit. I had a friend who had some arbitrage units, and he had like a bunch of units in this one guy's apartment complex. The, the owner saw how much money he was making once the lease was up. He tried to like really hike up the rent because he knew that he could afford it. My friend had to walk away from those units because it wasn't, it wasn't profitable anymore. Um, so there, there's a certain lack of control, lack of equity buildup. In terms of building wealth, like building long-term wealth, equity is a, is a huge factor in that. Like I've, I've built up over a million dollar net worth since we started investing in short-term rentals. And it's because of the appreciation that we've seen in our properties, right? And, and the fact that we own that equity. When you arbitrage a unit, if the, the value of the property goes from $500,000 to, to $600,000, you see zero benefit in that, right? You see zero benefit in that. It's the owner that, that gets those advantages of, of the equity buildup. And obviously, with equity, you can't live off of equity. So I'll say that first, right? If cash flow is, is great, you can't live off of equity. But equity does, equity does give you options. If you want to tap into that equity to go out and buy another property, if you want to sell those properties off to go out and buy something bigger, like those are the options you have when, when you actually own, own and, and you, can, uh, you can leverage that equity. And then the last thing is the, the tax benefits. Obviously, you can write off all the expenses associated with running the property or your rent payments and all the other things, but like a, a 1031 exchange. We've used that in our business to go from you know one property. We sold the property that we bought in Joshua Tree, and we turned that into two cabins in the Smoky Mountains, right? Like we wouldn't have been able to do that if we were arbitraging that unit, right? If, if the owner goes to sell, it's the owner that's going to 1031, not you. Those are kind of for me the big three reasons why I prefer to own my units over arbitraging. But again, last thing I'll say, Robert, is that I think eventually we will probably introduce some level of arbitrage into our business. But if we do do arbitrage, It'll most likely be in some of the more like urban or like metro markets where we're catering to more of that like business professional traveler and and that kind of thing. And probably doing it almost more as like a, a medium term, like a midterm rental type thing. We'll see when we get to that point. It can make sense. I don't personally love the Airbnb arbitrage model myself, but it can be interesting for somebody if you don't have a lot of capital, right? One of the things is you're gonna buy a five, six hundred thousand dollar property, you need that down payment. Whereas, you know, you're looking at usually ten to twenty-five percent down versus this arbitrage model, it's first months and security, maybe it's a lot more okay. approachable for somebody with less capital. Take the the pros and the cons, I suppose, and maybe is a, a good way to get started, get your feet wet, get some experience, and then maybe maybe scale up from there. But scale up. Tony, as we wrap up the show, I want to give you a chance to share with the audience where the best places are to connect with you, social media, podcasts, everything else you got going on. I know you have a cool short-term rental retreat or, or experience kind of coming up soon. Tell everybody about what, uh, yeah. what you got going on. We're hosting, uh, my wife and I were hosting a, a three-day short-term rental focused event in Newport Beach, California on uh, September 11th through the 13th. So if you guys want to get more information on that, head over to strsummit.com. I'm not sure when this comes out, but we still have like early bird pricing available. So as of today, it's $300 off the, the final ticket price. But amazing speakers in the short-term rental space. You'll, you'll learn about co-hosting, arbitrage, owned model like what we do, how to rehab a property that you want to turn into a short-term rental, how to design. We've got lenders coming out. Literally everything you need to know to start, manage, and scale your short-term rental portfolio. You will learn the basics of that at this, uh, at this conference. So strsummit.com. And if you guys want to keep in touch with me afterwards, uh, I've got my uh, Bigger Pockets Real Estate Rookie Podcast. We, we talk about you know, folks getting started in the real estate space. Uh, you guys can find me there on YouTube. Uh, my wife and I have a channel about short-term rentals, the Real Estate Robinsons. And then on Instagram, I'm at Tony J. Robinson. I will be sure to put a link to all of Tony's various resources and all the other resources we talked about throughout the episode in the show notes below for anybody that is interested in checking them out. Tony, thanks again so much for joining me. I appreciate it. 
I appreciate you having me on, brother. Hope the listeners got some value from this, man. We'll, we'll talk again soon. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.